0: Great to be with you all this morning. I am one of the pastors at Forest Hill, and I'm hoping I can see you all over this podium. This is kind of—I'm going to come around. There we go. Much better. There you all are. Hi. Good morning. <laughs> Great to see you all this morning. Um, you know, it's—I've been on staff at Forest Hill for about 15 years, and ministry is always one of these things that it's really a challenge at times to. Uh, to try to be in with a new group of people and and give them a flavor for kind of who you are but not make the message about me because I don't want it to be about me we want to see Jesus this morning that's why we're here we want to exalt his name and we want to come to know who he is this morning so one of the things I want to do as we pray and we get ready to read his word is I want to start by telling y'all a story about myself that um, may give you a little flavor, and you may decide after that to listen to me, or maybe to uh, figure you have other things you want to do and head to the Golden Corral early this morning. But I, uh, I was born and raised in Lakeland, Florida, and my uh, high school sweetheart, now my wife, and I were dating at the time. And twelfth grade came around, and Lakeland's a small town, a uh, little bit larger than Waxhaw, but certainly a lot smaller than Charlotte, and. We were part of Lakeland High School. That was the big high school there at the time, and we're there, and, you know, we had come to the fall, and the fall is the time where they have homecoming court, and homecoming court is happening, and I get put up to be one of the homecoming contenders, the potentially the king of Lakeland High School. Now that, to me, was like being king of the world at that time. If I could achieve that, oh, that'd be amazing. So I'm thinking, wow, okay. This is great. Well, the way they worked it, all everybody had to come and go up front and put on a skit. So each of the sponsoring organizations, mine was the Honor Society, which for those of you who want to translate, yes, that was the geek group that was really smart. Yeah, and they were presenting us, and you had to put on a skit, but they didn't trust the students. So we couldn't actually do a live skit. We had to do a recorded skit. Because they had had trouble in the past with students getting up and saying things they shouldn't. So you had to record everything, and at the time it was on one of those cassette tapes. and if you don't know what that is, turn to your parents later and you can ask them what that was. And the cassette tape and, and we got it all ready, well, I'm really nervous, because this is my, intro, this is my chance to be king. So I'm practicing on the way there, and I'm listening to the tape, and I'm practicing, and I'm mouthing my words, and it's really great, and I'm thinking, okay, this is, uh, I'm ready. So we run in, and there are a thousand students there that night, ready to vote on King and Queen, and all the different groups are performing, and it's my time to go up. And I, I hand the tape to the guy, and there's a whole group that goes up with me from the Honor Society, and we're getting ready to perform, and they put the tape in, and we all get in our spots, and we're all sitting, and we're ready to go. And as we're ready to go, they push play, and we start mouthing our words and suddenly we recognize that we look like we're lip-syncing but everything's out of whack and we look like Millie Vanilli up there going and everybody's wrong and we're thinking, what's happening? Oh no. And what I recognized was that I hadn't backed the tape up. So the tape was halfway through and we were at the beginning of this whole thing and we're thinking, oh no. So everybody's trying to get together and we're trying to get caught up to the tape and we get caught up to the tape. So about halfway through, we actually are mouthing the correct words to what the tape is performing, and we're doing this, in the, and we get ready, and we come to the very end, and it's our big finish, and this is our big finish, and, and here we go, and we're going to present, it. it's Mike and Whitney, Mike and Whitney, that's the, the, my potential queen. So we're ready to go, we'll, we get all done, and we run off stage, and Whitney's on one side, and I'm on the other, and she's changing into this nice dress, and I'm changing into these khaki pants and a, and a coat and tie kind of thing, and... I've I've had shorts on, and I pull my pants up, and I run out on stage, and I put my arm around Whitney, and this is my big moment, and it's going to happen. And suddenly, I notice everybody in the front row going, staring at me and starting to laugh. And I go, what? Well, there's nothing funny about this. This is my big entrance. And I look down, and my zipper's wide open. And not only is my zipper wide open, but my shorts have now bunched up, and they're sticking out of my zipper. And not only are my shorts sticking out of my zipper, but suddenly this huge banner comes behind that says, Mike and Whitney, bigger than life. (laughs) And then it starts to split. And Whitney looks down and sees me and she starts to cry and she heads off stage. And my high school career, but, oh, and I forgot to tell you all, right before that, the high school yearbook editor is right here on the front row. And he decides, hey, that's going to be a great picture, click. So now immortalized in the 1987 Dreadnought Lakeland High School yearbook is Mike Bowler on a full-page spread with his shorts sticking out of his pants. (laughs) One of my prouder moments. Thank you all. Yes. This is where some of you may decide it's time to go to the Golden Corral. Others may stick around to see could it get worse than that. This morning, my wife at the time girlfriend came up. She said, it's not that bad. I said, are you kidding? They just took a picture of me with my shorts sticking out. This was not at all what it was supposed to do. She said, it'll be okay. I'm like, how do you know it's going to be okay? I'm never going to be king. She looked at me and she said, well, I still love you. And what am I going to say to that? Well, I love you too, but I'm really embarrassed. And this was supposed to go this way. And it went that way. And I don't know about you all, but maybe you've been at a point in your life where you've thought, this was supposed to go this way. And I'm going to be king, or I'm going to be queen, or this is going to work out this way. Or I'm going to get this job promotion. Or I'm going to get this girlfriend or this boyfriend. Or my parents are going to buy me this new great iPhone. And it doesn't work out the way you think it's going to. Well, today, our, our scripture verse, Jesus is met with one of those times as well where he goes before his hometown. Now this is Jesus and y'all have been all around the the book of Acts and Jesus is at this point at the very beginning of the book of Acts as a lot of y'all will remember where first he's uh, gone out and, and he has been baptized and the father shows up and says this is my son whom I love, my beloved. Well pleased. And then Jesus goes out spiritual boot camp in the desert and for 40 days he's being tested and he's making sure that he's ready and then full of the spirit we're told that he's led into his hometown and when he's led into his hometown that's where we're going to pick up today we're going to be in Luke chapter 4 and you know in the early church when the scriptures were read people stood they stood out of reverence for God's word So I'm going to ask you all today, I don't know if it's your tradition, but I'd like for you to stand as we read God's word. Chapter 4, starting at verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, And everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue. And as was his custom, he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight For the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened upon him. He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they said? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to the widow in Zephyr, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elijah the prophet. Not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They, drove, they got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through them, the crowd, and he went on his way. Father God, we pray this morning that your word would not just be words in a book, but they would be your living word, your inspired, perfect word. Speak to our hearts here today, Lord Jesus. May we, by your spirit, draw near to you in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, young be seated. So Jesus is the hometown hero. He arrives and they say, "Jesus, we all know you. You're you're the carpenter's son, Joseph's son." Wow. You've been off. We hadn't seen you for a while. You're back. This is great. We really would like for you to come and speak today. And you know, I don't know about you all, but one of the things in, in these first couple verses that we see, and I don't know about y'all, but I, I have some friends who tell me, you know, I really don't need to go to church. I say, well, do you, do you believe in Jesus? Do you follow in his way? And they say, oh yeah, yeah, I do. But, but I can find Jesus on the golf course. Like, man, you must be a good golfer because I don't find Jesus on the golf course. They say, I can find him in the open spaces. I can find him in my heart. And I'm like, well, he does. He's it. God's everywhere. You can find him everywhere. But if you follow after Jesus's way, it says Jesus regularly, as was his custom, did what? Went to the synagogue. He regularly gathered together, regularly gathered with God's people to hear God's word proclaimed. So everybody gets together and they say, Jesus, we want you to read this. So Jesus takes the scripture And he reads this scripture, and everybody's amazed at what he's saying, and they're thinking, wow, this is great. Jesus, man, you're doing such a great job. We're so glad you're here. You're giving us this headline news that that we really like, and it's that there's good news for the poor. That's all of us, because we know we're poor. We know that compared to our Roman occupiers, we are in deep, deep need of your help. And we know that you're going to come, and you're saying this, and way to go. Man, that Joseph's kid, we're we're proud of him. He's doing such a good job and they're tracking right with him. And they're following him because what he's saying are things that they want to hear. Things that a lot of us want to hear. Things about what is God's mission in the world? Why did Jesus come? What is his mission here? And he says his mission, Jesus' mission, he pulls right out of To make sure that both his hearers in that day and us in this day would know that God is not just a God of the New Testament, but he is a God throughout all creation and has been working since before time to bring us all to the place of coming and knowing him. He goes right for his mission statement to the prophet Isaiah. Because see, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 61. And he says... The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. God's Spirit. In other words, be sure that you know that what I'm getting ready to say is not my idea. It's the Father's idea. It's not my will. It's the Father's will. It's not something that I've come up with or a a new way of looking at the world. This is something that God created from the foundations of the world. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me, he has prepared me, he has set me aside to preach good news to who? The poor. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. The poor. Probably not a description of what many of us would put if somebody asked us in five words, describe who you are. Poor would probably not be one of the first words. It may be for a couple of us here, but for most of us, South Charlotte, Waxhaw, Weddington, poor wouldn't be one of the first words we'd use to describe ourselves. And yet Jesus says he came for the poor. Now does poor mean that God loves people who don't have resources more than he loves the rest of us? Who do have resources? Does it mean that God has special affection for the poor? Does it mean what why is Jesus singling out one group of what might seem to be a socioeconomically depraved group? Deprived group? And if only we had a way of refinancing things and shifting around a little money, maybe nobody would be poor, and then Jesus wouldn't need to come to anybody? See, I think really he's getting at something much deeper than just the idea of the poor as in not having much money. At Forest Hill, we have for years taken kids to a place called the Pittsburgh Project. It's an inner city project in, in the center of Pittsburgh that was started three decades ago by a man who had a vision, who believed that not only did the poor who were physically poor deserve dignity by being served and given a hand up, But he believed that something transformative happens when you do that. In other words, when people who are of means, who can take care of themselves, who have an iPhone that plans out their day, who have Siri to tell them where they're going if they get lost. This morning I woke up to my three-year-old grabbing my cell phone speaking to Siri and telling Siri all this gibberish and Siri saying, I'm sorry, I don't understand what you're saying. I thought, okay. And then he said, Siri, be quiet. Siri looked, Siri spoke back and said, don't talk to me that way. (laughs) I got a little creeped out at that point and put the iPhone away. What did he mean by poor? He meant people who didn't have access to power, who were marginalized, who felt less than, who didn't feel like they were capable of taking care of, or were in fact not capable of taking care of themselves. So when we take these kids to Pittsburgh, remember the first trip we took, we met a lady. Sweet lady, 70 years old, name was Virginia. Virginia sat in her house that was all of about 200 square feet that had been built in the late 1930s and looked like it hadn't been worked on since it was built. She had a cellar that was the bottom floor and it was, that was below her, the floor that she lived on and you really couldn't go into it because it had flooded numerous times over the decades and it was filled with mold and mildew. Not surprisingly, she was sick a good bit of the time. So we had been dispatched as a group of teenagers with their young youth pastor at that time, me, to help her to go in and try as best as possible because back, this was a long time ago, we really didn't understand that mold wasn't something that you wanted to expose a lot of teenagers to. So at the time, now the class action lawsuits have kind of, you know, they piled up, but that's a whole different. (laughs) Kidding, joking. We're recording this. Please delete that part of it if you would. All you're saying, I can't speak on that. No, we uh, we went down and, and, and we're cleaning. And, and let me tell you, you would anticipate, because these kids worked hard. I mean, oh, stuff all over them. We're cleaning out all the dust. There's mold. We're doing all this stuff, trying to get this house ready for. And what we found out is we went down there and, and we're cleaning. And I thought we'd get back to Charlotte a week later. And I thought what would happen is. This would be something that they'd be so proud that they had worked on this. And then we also got to go to games at night. And we went to Pittsburgh Pirates games. They had this water park thing. And I thought that's what they were going to talk about. And you know what I heard when they, from parents? I heard about the homeowner. Heard about Virginia, That's who I heard about. I heard about the way that they had gone up and she had fixed lemonade for us. And they had sat around and she had told them stories. And what I realized is that when they had been in the presence of this person that couldn't care for themselves, something transformative happened. Something amazing happened when they were around the poor and something changed in them. Not because being poor is a virtue, but because she understood what it meant to not be able to take care of herself. And I believe Jesus was saying he was coming to proclaim good news to the poor because he needed all of us to recognize that maybe we all can't take care of ourselves. And that maybe at times there are things in our life that get in the way because we have our 401ks and we have our cars and we have our five-year plans and we have all the things that we do to be upwardly mobile and successful and there's nothing wrong with those except sometimes they get in the way of us recognizing that we are destitute without God and that Jesus didn't come to prepare a 401k plan for us and that he didn't come to get us into college and that he didn't come to make our marriages perfect like the front cover of Focus on the Family Magazine, however great that organization is, and that he didn't come to make sure that my children behave perfectly in church so people could go, way to go, Mike, great pastor. Man, look at his kids, all true. Jesus came to proclaim good news to the poor. He came to recover sight for the blind. He came because we all need a Savior. We all need a Savior. The word salvation. In the Greek, it's called sozo. It's the idea, if you've never heard that word, it's the idea of this complete healing. And you know, in the evangelical church, of which I am a pastor in the evangelical wing of Christendom, Um, We believe in the Bible, we believe in Jesus, we believe in the work of the Holy Spirit, we believe in the Father who loves us, and I think at times we may truncate our idea of what it means to understand salvation in its fullness. Because at times what we do is we tend to look at our lives and ourselves and we say, Jesus came to save me from my sins. That's salvation. And it's by grace, and we get that right And it's a free gift and we get that right. And it's out of the heart of God that he gives that to us and offers it to us and says he holds us in the palm of his hand and we get that right. And then we stop. Theologians call that justification. We believe that we stand right in God's sight. We are justified in his sight because of Christ's work on the cross and we believe that. But then we hold out and say, but the rest of our lives, the rest of our lives, well, that's different. The rest of our lives is really about us working things out, us putting effort into it, us putting our our nose to the grindstone, us pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps. I mean, these are great things to get our children to work hard. There's no free lunch. So we do that and we work hard. And that gets transposed over onto our Christian life. And and here's the hard part. Salvation, and I say it's the hard part because it's the hard part for us to hold on to, but it's the really great part is salvation isn't just about God saving us, our souls, For when we get to heaven, that is the ultimate glory, but it's about much more than that. Jesus came, the word salvation, sozo, it means he came to make everything right. If you look just a chapter later, two chapters later, Jesus is talking and he goes to the, and he goes to the idea in in chapter six of this, and six, nine, and he says, then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? Jesus is talking here to the to the, ruler, to the religious rulers of the day, and they're trying to, like they always did, they're trying to hone him down on Jesus. What do you believe? What is your mission? What do you hear about? What is really going on? And they're trying to catch him because they're professional religious folk, and they want to be sure that Jesus is on the end and that he's authorized to say what he's saying, And Jesus here is talking about the word salvation. He's talking about the idea that our faith, just a chapter later in chapter 7, he's going to talk and he's going to say, your faith has made you well. In other words, he's going to talk about salvation in terms not just of we've been saved for all eternity, but he's going to talk about sozo, salvation in terms of a child being healed. And then he's going to talk later on in chapter 8 about a person plagued with demons being delivered, being saved from this oppression. And you see, all this is living out what he started with that he's here for. In chapter 4, that he is here to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom to the captives, recovery of sight for the blind. He's here good news for those who don't have anything. Freedom for those who are bound up. Bound up how? Maybe in a jail probably most of us in here in some form of addiction. Maybe socially acceptable addiction like consumerism where we love to buy stuff and it makes us feel really good or maybe one we have to hide like alcohol, drugs, other things. He came to proclaim freedom for that. Recovery of sight for the blind. Any healing we, we experience is ultimately healing that God gives us. Physical healing, salvation, deliverance, all this, Jesus said he claimed, he came to proclaim to the poor. I grew up in a family that I heard about Jesus at a really young age. And I came to know him. At six years old, I had a Sunday school teacher. Those of you who teach kids at all, um, you may have no idea the trajectory you set a child on when you tell them Jesus loves them. When you tell them that Jesus loves them and that he has a plan for their life and that they don't need to fear God. They need to draw near to him in the person of Jesus. And their sins, they're no more. Changed my life when a Sunday school teacher year after, week after week, year after year said that simple message to us. So I grew up in a family that I knew Jesus. But the rest of my life, I I lived out like I was working hard. Remember I said justification, the idea that we're, we're at peace with God by his grace and by his love, but then we leave the rest of our life to have to work out this salvation. So the rest of that isn't by grace, it's by my hard work, it's by pulling myself up by the bootstraps, it's by really hunkering down and working hard. Theologian... Uh, and, and, and pastor described it this way when he said that most Christians in the evangelical church are spiritually middle class, not spiritually poor. Most of us in the church believe that rather than spiritually poor, where we believe that we owe God everything and he owes us nothing. Because you see, that's what was happening in the second part of this verse. When you look at what Jesus says, Jesus says that he cast this mission, why he's here, what he's going to do. He's going to release the captives. He's going to bind up the broken heart. He's going to give sight to those who can't see. He's going to do all these things. That's his mission. And when that happens, then he casts the vision to the people who are there listening. And he says, this is what's going to happen in the hearts of men and women when I do this. And this is where Jesus goes from preaching to meddling. This is where he goes from, gosh, it's so great to have him here. He tells such great stories. The widows say, he came over and helped fix my swing. It was broken. Now my grandkids can come swing again. Where they say, boy, he's so articulate. To suddenly, the story changes. Suddenly, this isn't going to go anything like they thought it was going to go because suddenly Jesus goes from telling them one thing, which is how great they are, that the headline news is that God loves his people, that he's going to take care of everything, that we're all going to be okay, and he shifts it. And the shift he does is the shift where he says, when I actually do these things, you upstanding middle-class spiritual folks, which may be, it certainly is me, it may be some of us here, you're not going to like it. Because you see he says and it's what makes everybody mad. He says this is really all the work of God is about God's love and his care for his people. And it's about this idea that all of our life, all of our salvation, all of our healing is from God. And spiritually middle-class folks, like most of us, kind of live with the idea that God saved me. But once he saved me, then he directed me to live in a way that says, I got to work hard. And you know what the converse of that is? And this is why they got mad. And it may be why some of y'all are mad at God. And it may be why I'm angry at God. Sometimes. Because the converse of it is, that the backside of it is, if I do the right thing and I'm a spiritually responsible person and I'm a good Christian and I tithe and I go to my life group and I volunteer at the church and I love my spouse, then God, you owe me. And we don't say it that way. We would never actually say it out loud, but it's in our hearts. God, I was faithful to my spouse and my spouse wasn't faithful to me. God, I've been a good parent. I've sacrificed for my kids. And now my teenager, I I hadn't seen them in six months. Except when they need money. God, I've been faithful. I've stood for you in the workplace. I've done the right thing. And I still now, I've been out of a job for six months. Spiritually middle class. We say, God, you owe me. You owe me because I've done the right thing. You owe me because I've worked my way up. The blessings that I have in my life, the things that I have, yes, they're by your grace, but really, they're by your grace because I'm special. Because I've done it right. And I know you love my poor neighbor, that that sap who plays his loud music and drinks his drinks in the afternoon and runs over my lawn with his lawnmower when he can't see straight. Y'all may have that neighbor too. Spiritually, middle class. And Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor to anoint me, to proclaim freedom for the captives and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, here's an amazing thing. If you go back to Isaiah, the very next verse that Jesus stops at, because Isaiah 60 goes on, Jesus stops at a verse there. He stops at the verse that says, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's vengeance. You see, Jesus is making a real point here that he's here to make sure that we all recognize that he is not about vengeance. He is not about retribution right now. He is not about making things right. He is about coming and loving people who are lost in our sinfulness, who are lost in our ways, who feel like that somehow if we're good people, life is gonna turn out okay when really he says, no, there's gonna come a day where my vengeance will come and it will make everything right. But right now, right now I've come to set everybody free. I've come to give you eyes to see what you couldn't see. I've come to love you in a way that you've never been loved before. I've come to make things right. The power of what happens when we understand that God loves us in a way that we don't have to work for our wholeness of our salvation. When God doesn't really owe us anything, but rather we owe God everything. When we work in a way that our lives are changed because what we see is rather than trying to claw our way up and get things, God calls us to what Henry Nouwen, a theologian, says is spiritual downward mobility. That God calls us to take the low road, that he calls us to go down. Because in Philippians 2, we're told that as we go down, Jesus, we're told in Philippians 2, poured himself out. Rather than trying to be like God, he said, I will be a servant. Rather than trying to be exalted, he said, I will choose, I will choose to humble myself. And then we're told as he humbled himself, God chose in his timing to exalt him. It's completely counterintuitive. Everything in our world tells us just the opposite. Everything from the time we're that high tells us you're on your own. You get what you deserve. We, we're the people, we're, we're a culmination of all the choices that we've made in our lives. But what God says is we're not a culmination of all the choices we made. We're a culmination of the choice that he has made in his love for us. And that through that and that by that love that God transforms us as we empty ourselves out. As we choose not to be exalted like Jesus did. As we choose like Jesus did to pour ourselves out. To take the low road. To not choose to be in the spotlight but to choose to be away from the spotlight. And that God in his timing and in his sovereign plan will choose when we're to be exalted. There's this great story It was captured in a movie years, five, ten years ago called The End of the Spear. It's a movie of a mission family, it's missionaries, four friends, all missionaries, traveled to the Amazon Basin. And as they traveled to the Amazon Basin, they were there to meet first time, that Westerners had ever, missionaries had ever engaged in a small tribe the Amazon basin who had for generations and generations killed themselves off they had been embattled savage butchery among small warring factions and these four missionary men left their families flew on a plane to go And to be the first Westerners to proclaim the good news of Christ to them. They landed. Within minutes of their landing, they were savagely butchered and killed. Later on, the families of those four men continued to reach out to this tribe. The tribe's heart began to change. And the chief of the tribe became good friends... With the son of one of the missionaries, they had never shared the reality of what had actually happened. But one day, filled with grief, this chief said, "We have to go. I've got a movie clip. It's going to last about four or five minutes. I want you to see what happened when this missionary couple, when this mission missionary son." And this missionary couple goes with the chief to see what really happened.
1: All Minkayani said was there was something I needed to see. No other explanation was offered. And so sure our journey, that had spanned two worlds, bridge the Stone Age in the 21st century finally led us here down the lonely Cordurai River. Sir July, this is it. Is this what this is what happened? (tries) Baba Patasso. So I dare patate a basina. O Quando ele estava, quando ele aduana aqui na acabou My father lost his life at the end of the spear and it was at the end of the spear that Minkayani and I found ours. It's true that my dad and his four friends were not given the privilege of watching their children and grandchildren grow up, but Minkayani is a grandfather. It's the first time in Wadani history they've ever had so many grandfathers. He's not only a grandfather to his own children, he's a grandfather to mine. My dad would have liked that. Through the years, people could always identify with our loss. But they could never imagine the way that we would experience gain.
0: powerful story, real story, about someone who poured out his life. And from pouring out his life in this powerful way of giving his life, the reality is through the gospel, the poor are made rich. Those who are lost are found. Those who don't have really As they let go of our lives, as we let go of our lives, we gain so much more. The majority of us here will not be called on to do something like this. We won't. But let me tell you, after working for 20 years as a pastor, counseling a whole lot of people, going into a whole lot of dark places in their lives and and in my own heart, what I have come to know is that God calls all of us, decision by decision, to die to ourselves. idol by idol, wrong motive by wrong motive, small decision by small decision, we are called to let go of our lives, to offer our lives up, as the scriptures say, as a living sacrifice to God. And that as we do that, as we offer our lives up, decision by decision, small thing by small thing, Withheld word by withheld word that may be the wrong thing to say. God chooses in His timing to exalt us, to bring us up like He did with Christ. The things that scare us the most, friends, are the things that we want to shy away from the most, the things that we want to not give the most. Those things are the things that God says, take a step into. Don't run away from it. The areas of our lives that we think we're diminished in, the areas of our life that we have pain in, the areas of our life that we hide from everybody and say, Don't look, and we all have them. Every one of us does. Some of us are more adept at hiding them than others, but we all have them. It's why the poor are so much closer to God in some ways because they can't hide them. The homeless man can't hide that he doesn't have anything. The divorced person can't hide that their marriage didn't work. The person with a physical deformity can't pretend like they don't have the physical deformity. God asks all of us to step in to those areas of our lives that we're holding out on. Because he says when we do and we, we pry our hands loose and we go into those areas that we'd rather not go. And we go down roads that we'd rather steer clear of and we go in places that may have been long long abandoned hear the rest of the verse the rest of the story of what god promises in isaiah because he says when we go into those places when we walk down those roads when we're willing to be brave To let go of the things that we need to let go of, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, release of darkness for the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of God's vengeance. To comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, God's city, us, God's children. To bestow a crown of righteousness and beauty, ashes instead, and oil and gladness instead of mourning. A garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They, we, you, will be called oaks of righteousness. They will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities and, that were devastated for generations. That is the promise that Jesus came to give to you and to me. That those areas that lay in ruin in our lives, that those areas that we hide from, that those areas that we think if we work harder, it'll be okay. The good news of the gospel is that they're not gonna be okay without Jesus, but with him, it'll all be fine. He'll make it right in this life, and if it's not in this life, it'll be in the next. But one way or the other, to the glory of God, he will restore, he will bring hope, and he will pour his love into our hearts. Gracious God, thank you for these friends in this place. May this all be to your glory, Lord Jesus. May you come and be among us, May you come and bring healing to your people. May your streams of living water flow in a way that we are renewed. May the ancient cities be rebuilt. May this place be known as your holy city. In Christ's name and for his glory, amen.